0: You are listening to The Worlding Podcast, where we explore the relationship of how we are both shaping and being shaped by our surroundings. The podcast traces interconnections by inviting each episode's guest to pass on the mic to someone who has influenced their world. And now, here's your host, dance artist Renee Schadler.
1: Hello, friends. Today, we're starting a new string figure with my guest, Sigma Zacharias. Sigma is a performance artist and researcher whose works produce situations of embodied thinking and sensing together with and through materiality. In this episode, we will focus on her recent research into collective forms of grieving and how this works with the polyvagal theory. The Materiality Within Our Own Bodies, which was coined by American neuroscientist Stephen Porges. Hi Sigma, thanks for joining us today.
0: Uh, Hi Renee, thank you for the invitation.
1: To begin, can you share with listeners your current surroundings and how they're shaping you in this conversation right now?
0: Uh, Yes, so there is, I'm sitting at the kitchen table and there's two huge pomegranates, a cup of tea, a book called How We Die is How We Live, only more so by Ori Dashri. and a few tinctures that have been sitting on my windowsill and that I have to shake every day and that have to kind of extract the stuff from the plants in the next two months.
1: Wow. It feels very layered, actually, as I think about the plants and the books and different lifespans um, of how long things exist for Mm. i just wanted to linger a little bit with the book you mentioned because diving into this topic of grief and especially looking at it through your research around materiality how have you come to this uh theme in your work at the moment
0: um it's hard to it's hard for me to uh Call it a theme in a way, because it's, it's, um, it's something that has been part of my life for a long time now. On the one hand, I've been working around the questions of death and finitude on a philosophical level for quite some time. But then uh, about four years ago, my sister got diagnosed with an autoimmune illness, and which she was supposed to live with but then died within half a year. So we had we shared a very intense and very open conversation of how this relationship is going to be changed by death and dying, although we thought it was going to take much longer. But we were, I mean, we had a very intimate bond and we could embrace this new entity in our relationship and really see how... It was changing it. And then she died and then the grief was a very different work. And, um, yeah, I mean, in a way, I'm, I'm doing this research still with her together, although she's not physically present anymore. Mm.
1: And I know during this process you're also trained as a death doula, which I think is something that's been in cultures for a very long time. Uh, but it's not so familiar to a lot of people. A doula is similar to a midwife during the birthing process or a doula during the birthing process, but really assists this process of dying, especially within family structures. How is that that uh, training for you and how has that impacted your performance practice? Mm. I think
0: I... Think I- I decided to do that because I realized that being and dying with my sister was something something I could do that like um being part of that process in a way and being um being a companion and being at, like tending and attending to this transition. Uh, and also all the obstacles that are happening in that transition um, was something that I felt I could do. So I wanted to see how um, what else there was that, that I should know about it if I wanted to work with other people. But then the other thing is really also that I'm seeing my artistic practice as a practice of a death doula or like... Originally, they called it end of life doula, but it's not for me, it's not just restricted to one person or the death of an individual, but also processes of death and dying that are collective and possibly to the question of, you know, in what kind of a transition are we as the human race or as a humanity or as. What? How, how can we attend to them and become attentive to those processes of change?
1: Mm, I think that also ties in very nicely with the polyvagal theory and this idea of co-regulating nervous systems. I feel like at the moment during the pandemic when a lot of us are isolated or in various stages of lockdown, this idea of collectivity and learning with and through other systems is really missing or perhaps that's the wrong word, transforming into something else. Can you talk a little bit about how that has also affected this idea of collectivity and really focusing on grief and grieving together?
0: So the... Polyvagal theory was something that I was introduced to by Niha Chris, who is a friend and a sound artist and a trans activist. And together with her, we were exploring already how we could maybe create spaces where this uh, kind of interlinking of nervous systems could become sensible. And so Steve Porges describes the vagus nerve um, as two, and it has two branches, the one side, the one branch goes to the side and goes in front and kind of regulates the lung and the heart and the the throat and the larynx. And um, the other one goes down to the abdomen. And both are responsible for the autonomic, Uh, functionings of these organs, so breathing, heartbeat, digestion. Breathing is special because breathing has um, both the uh, automatic and the voluntary possibility. But um, what he describes so strongly is that not only does does the information go down from the brain to these uh, organs, but actually we get a lot of feedback back to the brain. And so what he, I mean, he developed this uh, in his work with people on the autistic spectrum and uh, post-traumatic syndromes and saying basically kind of um, wanting to prepare the ground to go away from trauma work being uh, verbal work, like being only focused on making sense of things, but to work from the body and with the body. And so as the p- uh, vagus nerve is responsible also for the fight, flight, and freeze response, uh, we have the parasympathetic strand that is normally called the digest for, is, is responsible for resting and digesting, but he calls it the social engagement. And that is something very beautiful to kind of think And this is where it becomes interesting in how uh, kind of bodily engagement can feed back on a physiological level into a neurological level, into a psychological feedback loop, and from then on into a social feedback loop. So I can work on the body and create sensations, reactions that might enable me to encounter the world differently. And as I'm encountering the world differently, I can engage with the world differently. And so these there are four feedback loops that kind of um, create the relation or are part of creating relationship. And so the question is, if, if there are situations that bring us immediately into this panic state or into a shutdown state, what would be the situations or what would it need to come into the social engagement state? And I think that was where Niha and I at that time started thinking through. is like, how can we create or what could be artistic proposals to yeah, to create spaces where social engagement becomes possible. And just because you mentioned it before, one thing more is like, so what he's saying is that there is a there's a self-regulation that is happening where the body is helping itself into homeostasis again. But furthermore, and this is actually the new thing, he pointed out that we also have, the capacity to co-regulate. So co-regulation is basically the situation when you come into a room, you feel perfectly calm, but as soon as you enter the room, you get a sense of panic. And within 10 minutes, you're panicking yourself. Or the other way around, you are quite worked up and you come into a room and there is a complete sense of calm, of joyfulness, of connection. And that also starts influencing you. And there is no... There's, it's not just because uh, you tell yourself to become. There's something that's happening there that is um, determined by the connection of the nervous systems. And there's practitioners um, that work with this idea of cultural somatics, of how we, in a certain point of time, can influence each other, but of course also over time into. Into pasts and futures that we have shared, so that these nervous systems are really like mycelia that are connected, um, not in a linear way, but more in a kind of way of fielding, so to speak. Mm.
1: I think that's also very telling of this idea of worlding. Like we're talking about the the nervous systems within other human bodies that affect us, like if somebody has mm. kind, open eyes or is speaking in a grounded voice, for example, and then I definitely feel that from a surrounding perspective as well. If I walk into a room and there's a lot of natural light, um, there are low frequencies happening from different areas, perhaps a rustling of some leaves or it's a quieter space after coming inside from walking along a busy street, for example. Can you talk a little bit to that and this kind of interchange also with the surroundings, just to play on that thought a little bit?
0: Mm. So interesting to just because you mentioned the low-frequency Low frequency is actually something that happens um, that the nervous system reacts with arousal, meaning that it it, it gets heightened because low frequencies are the thing that uh, when we're still surrounded by tigers might have melt, meant uh, tiger growling. Um um, I mean, I'm saying this because Stephen Porges also did this safe and sound protocol, which is an acoustic intervention, a therapeutic acoustic intervention, which is a kind of five-day protocol that you do in the presence of a um, therapist f- exactly for this reason of co-regulation. And there they worked a lot with taking out all the low frequencies and then just staying in a kind of higher mid-range which is basically the kind of it's it's the human, the human calm voice. So it's not too high. It's also not too low. It's this kind of. I mean, he sometimes refers to as the mother's voice, but it could be any caretaker's voice, really.
1: Ah, uh, so interesting. I actually grew up uh, on the coast. I think I mentioned it mm. a few times in this podcast. Uh, the coast uh, in Western Australia. And for me, the low frequency is like the waves, like this kind of low mm-hmm. crashing and rolling back in. I think it's one of the calmest sounds for me. Whereas high pitch, I think of like um, police sirens, you know, or like an alarm clock waking me up. Mm. Um, but yeah, of course, there are different associations.
0: Uh, it's very interesting. I think definitely, would they don't refer to the to that high. Highness or or kind of high pitch of the siren, it's really more the human voice frequency, and also not as a scream. It's a it's a kind of, as we speak now, basically. Mm. Um, And and I relate very much to what you say about the low frequency and the rolling of the waves. I think what is happening there for me is that we sense the low frequencies stronger because they have they go through the body in a in a more palpable way so they, they become sensible actually rather than only hearable. I mean this is one of the one of the works that it kind of goes to for me, which is actually called waves, um, that that sound waves are really the thing that we cannot protect ourselves from that they engage on the material level with the body and not just on an acoustic or uh, understanding what you're hearing level.
1: Mm, that's a really nice thread, I think, with the materiality and the research into materiality. Like I have from this conversation, a kind of density perhaps in the grieving process um, Mm. A, a coming together that feels very thick. And now as we start to talk about the sound waves, I love that I just mentioned waves and the project's called waves and <laughs> um, sound emits waves. I promise listeners that was not uh, <laughs> predetermined in any way. Um, but yeah, that again becomes a materiality in your practice and the way you are connecting uh, threads of thought
0: yeah I think I mean for me the the waves I want to go a step back actually, even because we were talking about um, death and dying before, and in a way, um, part of the part of the work or the death work around this is um, to accept and to value. Um, and to appreciate and to attend to the materiality of death and dying um, and and start becoming receptive to them, so that means like even um, even in this like people always say you know there is nothing left when a person dies, and the so called soul disappears, and then there's it 's just the carcass and it 's just the empty um, uh, what is it called in English? It's like the, it's just the kind of, um, the etliche Hülle of German. <laughs> so it's just the, the packaging.
1: But the shell, you could say the, the shell of a
0: human shell. remains. Yeah. Yes. But actually, I mean, I remember with, uh, my father dying or my father being dead because I wasn't there when he died. But, um, how much I appreciated to actually see the progression of processes and to feel and to sense them. So, you know, to smell the sense, um, to smell the the scent that develops, to realize that the change in color and the change in smell is because other organisms that have been part of him Bacteria and and things are are actually um, thriving. <laughs> you know, there is a there is a change in um, almost like valence is um, who is attending to whom, and but but actually the materiality of the body is still there and it's very much uh, still in process and. It's just that this process continues differently without the functioning of the organs. That's also one of the things that I was, uh, that maybe brought me to this question or to this research, to this interest in like what, how is the body actually part of a materiality and possibly also of an uncontrollable materiality that we are constantly engaging with.
1: Mm, I really just want to play also with this idea of uncontrollable Um, to share also uh, from my lived experience. My grandmother passed away when I was younger, around 13 years old, and I was actually with her when she died. My mother had organised for her to be released from the hospital and we had a hospital bed in our lounge room and the immediate family were there. And I remember her passing around 11 p.m. at night and having quite a peaceful process, I would say. She really looked at us all in the eye one by one and then her tongue gently rolled into the back of her throat and there was a a little gargle, which I would say perhaps was a a low frequency. It definitely (laughs) made my nervous system feel a little bit on edge. Mm. Yeah, and then... She was no longer breathing and the next day as a child I I felt like she needed to leave the house. There was that feeling of like, ah, oh, this is strange. My grandmother is different. She's not talking anymore. Like I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable. There wasn't that hmm. familiarity with death which perhaps in previous generations there had been. Like I think there is also that separation now of living and death which is another wormhole to go down for sure Mm -hmm. but it was very uncontrollable how quickly other forces took over uh it was summer in australia it was hot she was a large woman she was perspiring a lot Uh, there wasn't the skin wasn't absorbing now the sweat so it became quite sticky yeah and the and the smell was very palpable But there was that collectivity, actually, the fact my mother was so relaxed and it was so important for her to be there. Everybody was calming me down in that process. And I could also begin, actually, to appreciate the beauty in it, something that, you know, in the Hollywood blockbusters is disgusting and you cover it in a white sheet. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it was really that idea of a collective grieving, I would say, and witnessing of the materiality
0: changing mm. that's beautiful thanks for sharing that that's very. it's also a very special thing as a child to have memories of how the community around you does this so for example my great grandmother was a lament singer like a wailing woman in her village and in Romania, and they they would always be called the wailing women to wail to to the dead. So they sing to the dead. So there is also this kind of possessed action. I mean, this is how it was perceived in Romania. Anyway, to kind of say this is a kind of certain tongue. Um, and the the vigil is three days long, and um, this thing of like how how the wailing holds the situation and lets people go through these waves of emotion and also really helps releasing the breath um, that people tend to hold. In, because grief is a stressor for the nervous system, for sure. And, but then how, uh, because it's an extreme change, like basically every extreme change and the loss is an extreme change. How do, you, how, does the, how do you kind of adapt to that? And in a way, this different grieving practices, we can see also as ways to adapt with the situation with an extreme change and to be in the situation that you just described where mm, you were welcomed into or you were invited into just the being with the process of decay. And being with, experiencing the loss of the person you had a relation to and having another relation to, having to start to build another relationship to, uh, in that with the same person that in in a lot of ways wasn't the same anymore. I think that's a, it's very beautiful to, to learn that or to have experiences of that at such young age because I think this is something that we're missing at the moment or at least in this part of the world um, that the mm, grief is something that is uh, is extreme is disruptive uh, people have patience with it for about a year and then you have to be over it um, but um, a lot of people who have had like intimate grief relationships uh, will share this maybe to, to say that actually you never get over it. You, you learn to live with it differently. And I started uh, looking at how, like how does it make me learn to live? Um, and how does it make me want to live also because in this if grief is a reaction to a certain loss then um, there's a whole kind of recalibration reconstellation let's say of world I mean a lot of part of grief is kind of reworlding. and here we are with your podcast but (laughs) it is really a kind of how do I how am I in the world? How is the world in me? And how do we relate to each other? Um, and and especially with um, with griefs that are in the world at the moment, there are there is no end point. So, I mean, uh, you know, maybe even if you think that, you know, this person has died, it's been several years now, you should be over it. And um, what do you do with grief? that comes because of climate change, for example, which is going to be an ongoing process of losses, definitely until the end of my lifetime <clears throat> and probably everybody's lifetime. So how do you, you know, what's the end point to a grief like that? So in a way, I think part of my research and part of my desire to to work with this, um, also on an artistic level, is to kind of ask how we can how can we train, how we can rehearse uh, living with grief as making futures, because we will not get rid of it.
1: Mm. It also really resonates with me, this idea of poly, like we've been talking about the polyvagal theory, but actually mm-hmm. in the idea of grieving collectively, can there be a polyphony of responses like talking about the different um, rituals around death perhaps uh, within my family within the traditions in Romania Um, how can we allow for many situations and many feelings to coexist and come in waves like I know personally through the process of grief, there are very strong waves that hit you. And then it's interesting if the space, if the surroundings can hold that, if the community of humans you're with can hold that or support that. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and as you said, when that allowance shifts, I think it's really interesting at the moment with corona that if someone has a positive test, they can't do anything and it's not questionable. There isn't that kind of side comment of like, oh, but maybe you could just do a few hours on your emails or maybe you could just come in for a few hours. Um, you're, you're out, you know? And I feel like as a society, this process of grief and grieving, there is that time period of like, okay... Be productive now, you know, like that process is gone, or the little side comment of, like, oh, I know the funeral's at midday, but in the afternoon, would you be available slightly? Um, could you talk a little bit about that flexibility of time and how we can approach this polyphony of responses collectively without there being some judgment or shame
0: around mm-hmm. diverse responses? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I can hear two questions in there at least. Like, one is to the different um, different ways to respond to grief, and also how it kind of comes over you in different ways at different times. And I think um, that is part of the for me the uncontrollable materiality of grief for me is is the bodies and the relationships of bodies and not only human bodies so I think there is no right or wrong way of grieving that's that's one of the things already that I think just to kind of tell people what to do is um, doesn't work <laughs> or to try to help them I mean I think one of the best things that we can do to each other is to be present for each other and attend almost in this, like to be, I mean, this is something a lot of people say, just be present and listen. And in a way that ties back to the co-regulation, like you don't need to actually do something if you are there and open-hearted. And this is, we're still talking only about humans with humans. But I think there are other relationships that we're engaging with also. Um, And I think part of the practice would be to understand if we're all constantly grieving, maybe in different intensities, but we're in a process of grieving and getting used to grieving, then what we could do for each other is take turns in holding each other's pain and being present with each other's pain and um, practice this vulnerability Um, towards each other Um, that's I think that's one of the things and also to realize that when we're doing that uh, when we're let's say when we're when I'm on the receiving end of this like I'm on the receiving end of your presence to my pain let's say then um, then I also sense how I go through processes And that I can be in another state in some time. And so also to learn that grief is not a complete state of unsafety that brings up all these um, fight, fright, and freeze responses. But it's a huge, um, it's painful, it's... uh, it might be threatening, but it might not be. I might perceive it as threatening, but it doesn't have to destroy me. So how do we, how do we learn to live in this or with this senses and waves of discomfort, let's say, also? Um, maybe that's one thing, and I think that's something that I'm definitely trying to... Uh, Create situations of in the listening sessions where you feel different people get up, go through different points of discomfort in it, and yet kind of experience places of uh, comfort or of of actually more of a kind of being held in a different way. Um, but the other thing about the time, I think this question of time and when people have no time for your grief anymore <laughs> is really uh, i don't know i think that i think in so far grief is probably really a practice of resistance or of co- actually more of queering than of resistance because it's actually just not it cannot it cannot be captured by questions of functionability and um, production Like that's one of the things that a lot of people say that under grief I'm, I can't function I just don't function and I don't know what to do and I can't produce anything And and for me this personal grief and this collective grief because of bigger events that are bigger than me and in a way grief is always bigger than me but because it lets me touch other times and other spaces, but, or it brings me a connection to them. But like really, processes like climate change or the pandemic are, are, are such that we don't know what to do with the idea that um, production and functioning has a certain timeline. Because we, it just doesn't it doesn't work with the bodies that are in this time, so thats uh, that was a very kind of winded way of talking about it, but yeah,
1: but in a way actually very concrete, I appreciate it a lot, because there is this yeah collective holding, as you said, for the waves of grief, and then this question of duration and. It does also this metaphor of a pandemic which is very real and we're living it but in a way from a different perspective can really open up like a lot of possibilities for something that's ongoing and unstable and unknown um, that we, we watch unravel and we witness unravel over time. I think it's really testing our capacities uh, to allow that to be flexible in schedule, to really be off
0: um I'm just wondering if it can't create another relation to time, so that we don't just think of it as let's be more flexible, but what if the whole contract has to shift? what if um, you know maybe maybe there's different ways to making contract then to squeeze like five Zoom meetings in a day and then forget the performance online that I wanted to go to or in real life also and that I wanted to go to just because there is so much happening at the same time. So um, sometimes, I mean, this is something I'm struggling with, but I do ask myself constantly if I can't find a different relationship to it. Yeah. Because to think that we can just stretch the system that we had is not good, is somehow not satisfying. And it also doesn't really work.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I really like the idea of emergence, actually, and allowance, this allowance of the many reactions, the allowance of different times, different durations of grief, how to find that within kind of more uh, structured or work-orientated timescales is a big proposition and something to kind of sit with for a long time, I think.
0: (laughs) So one of the things, for example, that I I started doing was these listening sessions that I mentioned before that were called WAVES. Listening session towards social bodies, and it really came from the lockdown situation. And I have been doing a lot of very immersive, visceral works. Um, and I realized I can't. That that's not going to happen. So how can I get in real touch? How can I like? How can I provide a space that is immersive and physical? That could work in a remote way, and so I started working with these sounds and sound waves. And uh, so there, it is, for example, a very, um, very local, very kind of timely, restricted space. So in this space, we're listening together to a sound piece, um, and then, and then afterwards, we also try to exchange something or share something. Uh, of the experience and even remotely i was interested if we could have this sensation not just of self-perception through the maybe shifting pro because of the sound waves but um but more and also the the interlink between the sound waves and the nervous system because this is the material that we worked with was really trying to work on the nervous system also. Um, But also, if the co-presence of people remotely would help to get a sense of co-regulation, to get a sense of co-presence, even though it was taking place on Zoom. And there were some really beautiful moments where I would ask people always to kind of take a heavy object and lay it on themselves, and to please leave the camera on. And even if they don't want to be in the image, to just point it somewhere. And so we had this. There were some very beautiful images of empty rooms or corners of rooms, basically. But together they collected this one shared space Mm -hmm. of presence-absence.
1: Oh, that's beautiful.
0: Yeah. And then the other thing that I've been doing, this is why I have the tinctures, is that I started working... With plants and thinking of like building a grief garden that were basically the gardening and the tending to plants is the space of sharing and and creating grieving practices that are... Because grieving practices don't have to be wailing like my great-grandmother did. Grieving practice also could be being together in a space that we declare into a grieving practice and then what takes place inside of it could also be joyous laughter. Um, this, is, this is, for example, what happens often at vigils, that people are also having a lot of fun. It's not just about sadness and tears. So how can even this fun be part of um, attending to our different griefs?
1: Do you find that different people attend both that would come to a waves listening session and also spend time in the garden or is it really do you find like certain nervous systems have tendencies towards certain frameworks
0: there are some people who attend to both there's also very different audience so to speak because I'm I'm kind of shifting from the idea of audience although I work with acoustics now but to more like publics, because this is where the research really started with this question of what is it to do grief privately and what is it to do grief collectively and publicly? And how how can we actually never be, al- I mean, why shouldn't we be alone in grief? But actually also, how are we not alone in grief ever? And then how to take acknowledge that and actually create collective public spaces where we can do grief work together. And the the garden space is at Nachbarschaftskampus in Neukölln uh, and works, which is really nested in a big social housing thing called Weiße Siedlung, and so we work a lot with um, people with migration backgrounds from there, and so that is also a very different grief work which is basically really also just providing space for uh, processing structural violences actually
1: Mm. wow maybe that's another a future iteration of placing the waves listening within the garden or something like this Mm. like i wonder if we can again with this like multiple responses to grief be in the in the kind of somatic listening internal space while also experiencing this joy because I often have that I think when I'll be in like a celebratory space but inside feel quite melancholy or slow like how can we yeah mix things together and allow that to be okay I guess again with this worlding of being in a freezing situation outside in a Berlin winter, but there being <laughs> sunshine, for example. Um, yeah, this is this is just mm. an interest at the moment, so <laughs> something to leave with you, perhaps.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I think the, I think it's really the, from at least for me, it's becoming clearer and clearer that part of if we if we accept that we will be grieving for the rest of our lives, <laughs> you know but in different ways and what these different ways could be. And if building futures has to necessarily incorporate this capacity to grieve collectively, then how do we build joyous futures so that these two things aren't mutually exclusive at all? Absolutely. My whole desire, my whole work is to create collective and public places for grief work and to see how performance is part of this, and so the conversations and the practices and the exchanges that that flow into this work is are like year-long exchanges with Erica Nichols, for example, who is a choreographer and who's been working around death rituals and grief for ages. Um, the the way of the listening series. Uh, was a collaboration where I invited four different composers to um, make a listening session so there were Niha, who I mentioned before Niha Chris and Sam Hertz and Judy Harmon and um, then I made three together with Steve Heather um, so and then they were hosted by the Finseerland FFT so it's it's a lot of people who are interested to see how we can expand this conversation, how we can hold space. Then also the Nachbarschaftsgarten, the Social Body Apothecary Project that I mentioned is a collaboration between Shelley Edkin, who is a choreographer and land artist, and uh, Kitty Singer, who is an uh, artist and engineer. So and then and then Anna Di Carlo who invited us into this garden. It's very exciting, but it's also very beautiful to see that you know it takes a village to be with grief. During this conversation you've mentioned a
1: few propositions, and I would love if you could share one with listeners and myself so we can really embody These themes and conversations, which, as we established, are even more than themes, they're really life processes of grieving and co regulating our nervous system.
0: Yeah, I'd love to. Mm. Maybe what we could do is I would invite you, dear listener, to take one headphone out if you're wearing headphones. And um, what I'd like you to do is to find a heavy object that you place on yourself. I will probably take one of these huge pomegranates. And then just sit and listen to your surroundings. And try to pick the lowest frequency that you can hear, since we've spoken about low frequencies. So see what the low frequency is that you hear, if it's a fridge or if it's the street or whatever it could be that's around you. And then try to hum with it. And as you're humming, you can first just hum and then see how the humming travels through your body um, and until it's kind of moving like waves maybe, or maybe it moves differently in you. Just see how the hum moves through all the liquids and open spaces and different kind of textures and densities of your body. Um, So we'll do that together for about two minutes and then I'll invite you back. So um, I have my pomegranate. Do you have something for me?
1: Yeah, I have a glass of water on my shoulder. Great. Let's begin. Mm.
0: So yeah, that would be one proposition. Thank you. And I don't know, I don't know how it was for you, but I found myself swaying as I was doing it.
1: I'm standing up actually and I really needed to bend my knees. Like I really felt like weighted, not so much swaying, more like getting closer to the ground. Hmm. And like my, my pelvis really feels like a bowl of water <laughs> I don't know if that's also part of it but I had my glass of water on my shoulder and <laughs> you mentioned the liquids in the body and everything started to swim
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's beautiful so we had the ocean, the waves and the bowl of your mm. I
1: think I might uh, lead into a departure on these very deep and resonant uh, feelings and sound frequencies. If listeners would like to experience Sigma's practice live, um, I would invite you to a free hybrid lab, which means it happens online and in presence in Kreuzberg, Berlin. And Sigma will be facilitating... Moving Across Thresholds, another shared format that I'm curating on the 21st of April and all listeners are warmly invited. I know a few people are listening from America and in the Nordic region so if you're one of those listeners also feel free to go online and join us. You can find the information at www.movingacrossthresholds com, and I'll also put the link in the show notes. I'm really looking forward to that session, Sigma. Yeah, me too. I will come with my water bodies. <laughs> <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> and uh, to continue this conversation, who have you lined up to speak with us for the next episode?
0: I love um, connecting you with Zinzi Buchanan. They... Um, Their work revolves around death, love, sickness, and divination. And um, they've just finished working on the Sick Bed series and are going towards working on ancestral trauma healing. And I love listening to them speaking
1: about their work. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to that conversation. And thank you so much for this beautiful offering. Have a wonderful
0: day. Thank you for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Worlding Podcast. Gefördert durch die Beauftragte der Bundesregierung für Kultur und Medien im Programm Neustart Kultur. Hilfsprogramm des Tanzen des Dachverband Tanz Deutschland.